Studs. Our analysts break down fights, bring you pre-bout predictions and previews, plus talk all things MMA, from the UFC to Bellator, and every show in between. If it's a fight, we have you covered. Are you ready? Baseline Times presents TJ Labello, Josh Thomas, and Cody Gwynn with Baseline MMA. Welcome to the latest edition here of Baseline MMA. Cody and Josh hanging out with you. It is the month of October. We're moving right through. October always a great uh, fight and sport month, usually football in full swing. But MMA's always had a, a big place in October, putting on some great fights. And this year has been no different. we got a couple cards to break down for the last couple of weeks. Plus, we'll preview the big upcoming fight between Korean Zombie and Brian Ortegan just a couple weeks away from the return of Khabib as he'll jump in there with Justin Gagey. Joined, as always, by Josh. And, Josh, we got, again, a lot of things to talk about. We'll talk a little bit about Bellator as well. But uh, where do you want to start? A lot of places to go here. Man. The the only place to start is that viral KO over the weekend, man. I think everybody that's listening, uh, they're dying to hear what we think about this thing. Just a, a wild viral knockout, as you mentioned. Joaquin Buckley getting his uh, kick caught. And if I go old pro wrestling style here, a uh, modified Insiguri style kick where someone catches your lead kick and you counter with a swing kick from the opposite side. Uh, he goes almost back kick style, almost a, a spinning back kick. Uh, it's a wild video. If uh, anyone has ever taken a little karate or even watched karate, uh, not Karate Kid or Cobra Kai or anything like that, but you know, actual karate competitions, they've seen a, a style of kick like that before, and it was very karate-like. But when you're talking about two 185-pound middleweights, sure, neither of them weighed 185 pounds when this happened, but two big middleweights, uh, the kick looks – 10 times more vicious than you ever see in a, in a karate match. And the crazy thing is looking at Joaquin Buckley and the way he threw it, it was so smooth. There was power behind it. There was accuracy behind it. You know, Josh, we see guys do crazy things at MMA all the time. But for someone who has a gym, who coaches, I mean, you know, these are not just off-the-wall style things. Going back to the Anthony Pettis days of the Showtime kick, uh, these guys train these techniques so when they throw them of course we freak out and go never seen anything like that before but i mean you know these guys are working on these techniques oh absolutely and and to actually <clears throat> to actually add to what you're saying i've actually tried something uh similar to this before uh just during sparring and of course i wasn't going for the head but somebody had caught my lead kick excuse me i got choked there for a second somebody had caught my my lead kick and i tried to spin around and throw just a body kick just to get a little bit of separation so uh, when you see Joaquin Buckley do it on such a grand scale and in such a violent manner, this is something that he has prepared before. Um, Impa, so this happened on Saturday night. All of my Muay Thai guys watched this, and they all came in Monday just gushing about it. So I showed uh, the correct way to catch a kick, to swing the outside leg, uh, or I'm sorry, to, to swing the leg to the outside and then take a little step off that center line, just getting yourself out of the harm's way in case something like that was to come back at you. But absolutely, probably probably the greatest or one of the greatest uh, knockouts, not only in, in UFC history, but in MMA history as well. You know, it's definitely, uh, if it's not the number one, it definitely has to be the top five. You know, you've got that, you know, you just mentioned that beautiful Showtime kick, uh, Anthony Pettis, Benson Henderson off the cage. Uh, you know, you've got the Jorge Masvidal, the, the five-second knockout of, of Ben Askren. You've got Conor McGregor KOing uh, 
Aldo, you know, whether you, you like it or not, that is a, a, a definitely a viral moment. Uh, and then Barboza and, and Terry Edelman now, Joaquin Buckley and Impa Kasagani. I mean, it was, uh, you guys just watch history be made. Yeah, that's one of those that'll be on pretty much any highlight reel you see from here on out. And, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a good good example. You know, you see a lot of guys over the years, and this is something we used to train a lot too back in the day, is, you know, both sides uh, of kick catching. You're always caught, you know, when you catch the kick, to never just hold the kick. That was always something that you see a lot of guys do, and that's any level, whether you're watching an amateur fight or still in the UFC where guys catch kicks, and it's almost like they catch the kick to catch the kick. You know, the – the whole purpose is to fire something back, whether it be a straight down the pipe while you're holding someone's leg, because usually, you know, your, your body instantly reacts to sort of, for some reason, grab your own leg or move your hands out to balance, leaving your face open. We've seen a lot of guys over the years, especially in Muay Thai and K1 fights, catch, kick, return with the kick, and then release. Uh, we've seen a lot of that or throw knees. A lot of the K1 Muay Thai guys, you see beautiful guys or beautiful kit. You guys catch the kick and fire with a knee. It's one of my favorite techniques to watch. Um, Very beautiful guys. It, it, it very they look great doing it it's great to watch <laughs> you see a lot of guys too when they get their uh kick catch and josh you can talk more about this you know how do you teach your guys what to do instantly when you when you get your kick caught a lot of times i know we used to train right when someone catches your kick to push with that leg that they catch to try to free up space or at least get full distance back to where for them to hit you they would have to really overcommit almost to land a straight but uh you don't see a lot of coaches teaching you know throwing a spin kick or, or a flip over kick as we've seen guys try in the past uh what would be your go-to technique uh to teach your students what to do when your kick is caught uh well it's, it's definitely unorthodox to teach a spinning back kick from that position right. so whoever taught him that kudos to you because you know, Joaquin Buckley is getting all the fame, but you you need some of the recognition as well. Um, no, anytime that that my guys are practicing catching kicks, the person throwing the kick, uh, you you are you're supposed to kind of kick forward to kind of create a little bit of space in there to get your foot back down the level ground, uh, or kind of turn your body and leap the other way. You know, kind of kind of donkey kick your way out of that position. And, uh, you know, you were talking a moment ago, Cody, I actually have a knockout on my record where I caught a kick and threw a straight clean down the pipe. Mm -hmm. uh, you're exactly right. I mean, teaching teaching these little fundamental things, and I'm not saying that, that Joaquin Buckley or Impa Kasaga and I have never been taught these things, uh, but these little things that, that you think your coach is kind of showing you, you know, just to kind of maybe fill up some time or fill up some space, these are these are really pivotal things uh, in the grand scheme of, of actual martial arts. So, um if you're if you're catching a kick, I always teach to swing it and kind of take a step back and then re-engage, or to catch and immediately fire something down the pipe. Uh, but if your if your kick is being caught, you know you could always do the old chail son and the whole roll forward. You know, yep. it might yeah. look kind of it might look kind of unorthodox, but you're not gonna you're not gonna get caught on the way out. Yeah, I was about to say when I think you know now of course when I think of kick catching, I'll instantly think of this knockout. But before that, I would think of two great middleweights. I would think of Shell Sonnen doing his little his little forward roll that that would get him out of trouble, or of course Anderson Silva holding James Irvin's leg and firing not one but two straights down the middle and just busting him up. And again, that's a beautiful technique and one of those that will for a long, long time be on highlight reels and for good reason. I mean, not only the knockout, but you know, poor Impa, it was almost like a movie style knockout. It looked like something from Rocky 
where he he was frozen and went down very slowly. Uh, just a beautiful highlight reel. And you know what's crazy is on this card, of course, we'll talk about the main event in a minute because it was also a spin kick knockout. Any other card, we'd be you know gushing about Sanhagen's spin. But when it was just you know a TKO, we got this on the other card. People are like, ah, Sanhagen's was okay. But you know the crazy thing was two fights later was a beautiful knockout by Tom Breeze with a jab, a pinpoint, crisp, beautiful, sharp jab that would make anybody who studies the sport or coaches the sport just blush with how excited they were to see a jab actually get a finish. Uh, it was a beautiful thing. So it, it's wild to see, you know, what MMA really is. You know, we got a, a spin kick knockout. Then you got guys doing ground and pound, getting finishes, and then a clean jab will get a finish. Three knockouts in a row, all different ways. Uh, just, it just goes to show, I mean, this sport can have fights in, in, in so many different ways and fashions. And this all happened within a span of about 30 minutes on that card this weekend. Yeah, that card was absolutely explosive. And, and uh, to add to, the, uh, to what you were saying about the jab, man, do you remember, uh, I think it was Joe Riggs and Chris Camozzi. Uh, Chris Camozzi dropped Joe Riggs with a jab. I mean, jabs are seriously underrated. Uh, and you've seen that in full effect this weekend. You know, in the main event, Corey Sanhagen, such a long guy, just using that jab to really find his range on uh, on Marlon Marais. I'm not gonna lie, man. This this weekend was one of those cards where I think a lot of people kind of kind of were thinking to themselves, "Oh, this might not be uh, either not not worth watching or or not worth uh, spending the time and effort to get home and and to start watching it." But man, let me tell you, from top to bottom, this was an absolutely phenomenal card, uh, full of finishes at that. Um, I don't know where you really want to start, but I've got to start off. My girl, Tracy Cortez, showing absolute dominance in the, uh, the, uh, the women's bantamweight. I mean, over three rounds taking on a, uh, judo black belt and just, just absolutely dominating. I mean, we were talking last week about the lack of, uh, of UFC bantamweight, um, I guess contenders or or even challengers, really for that for that matter. But Tracy Cortez is definitely shining above the rest. Um, and then sh- that the kick, the kick from Impacasagan Earth from uh, Joaquin Buckley. I mean, it just stole the show, didn't it? Yeah, it kind of took away from some of the other things we've seen on the card. The crazy thing was, you know, Cortez was supposed to fight Bimaleki, which was going to be a really good prospect fight. Uh, and Maleki had to drop out of that fight for non-COVID reasons. I guess we always got to say that now when a fight falls apart, that some, some fighters still actually get injured and can't fight. Uh, the crazy thing was when Stephanie Edgar stepped up, again, with that uh, background in judo, has got a very well-based ground game, always been really tough. Uh, Cortez was actually the underdog entering that fight, which I thought was wild. It was an easy pick for me because I had just been way more impressed with Cortez and thought she's one of these fighters that every time she fights, she looks a bit sharper and a bit better. You can tell she's getting more comfortable in the fight setting. Uh, it was a beautiful performance. You know, a lot of times we get caught up and we want to see fighters win fights real quickly. It always impresses me more when a fighter can dominate a fight for 15 minutes, especially a prospect. It's good to see them for that whole time. And it was real impressed with how Cortez looked. Uh, again, as you mentioned, Buckley stole the show. Tom Breeze looked excellent going in there, you know, a fight that he was the favorite on. And, and people were sort of circling that as maybe their their money fight on the card to pick a good upset. Tom Breeze looked outstanding. You got to think Tom Breeze. If he could just stay active, he'll eventually move into getting some of the bigger fights in the middleweight division. Love seeing Tom Brady's fight 
and he looks great. And then, you know, to, to start the main card, we've seen a lot of up-and-comers. But, I mean, you know, really, to me, I go right to the co-main event because I don't know about you, Josh, but I know when fighters are on losing streaks, you instantly sort of drop them to gatekeeper status. I don't know if it's just the soft spot in my heart for, you know, everything he's done in his career. But, I mean, I legit think Edson Barbosa is a top five contender in the featherweight division i really think just based on how he levels up with every single fighter in the featherweight division i know he's lost some fights in a row they've all been close but when i just look at this featherweight division we got a huge fight to talk about later on with zombie and ortega i mean maybe i'm crazy but i think edson barbosa would match up great with either one of those guys um and he got a big win this weekend again you know, against Americani, a, a fight that I think Barbosa was favored in, but Americani's got a lot of tricks up his sleeve. You know, he's a herky-jerky style guy with a great ground game and an unorthodox striking game that will kind of draw you in, and then he can take you to the ground. Uh, Barbosa needed a win, maybe more than any other fighter on this card, and he got the win, and now instantly, you know, at least in my opinion, right back into the mix. And, you know, featherweight division is, you know, going to have a new title challenger by the end of this weekend upcoming. Uh, but, man, I'm, I'm so, I just really think even coming off this long losing streak, I think Barbosa would be a problem for any guy in the top ten in the featherweight division. Absolutely. And and to to kind of add to the credit of what Barbosa done over the weekend, you have to look at his opponent, uh, Maquan Americani. I mean, this is a guy who he came to the UFC. He had only lost two fights. Um, and, I mean, he's an absolute stud. And he had only lost – he lost once by submission and once uh, a decision – so he, he enters the UFC, he, he wins three fights in a row, and then he gets pitted against uh, Arnold Allen, right, who Arnold Allen is kind of the perennial uh, on the edge. Um, what's, what's the word I'm looking for here, Cody? Like he's on the edge of, of being one of the top uh, he's a, he's a, 10. Yeah, he's like a dark horse in the division. Yeah, yeah exactly, yes. So Arnold Allen is the, the dark horse of the, the, the featherweight division, right? So when you lose a, a split decision loss to that person, uh, yeah, your, your stock's still okay. Uh, and then, you know, Amir Khani went on, he beat Jason Knight, who, you know, obviously has been making huge waves in bare knuckle. Uh, you know, Chris Fishgold, he, he anaconda choked Chris Fishgold. Then he loses to Shane Burgos, which after seeing Shane Burgos a little bit more in depth, we've certainly come to realize this is uh, – <laughs> This is not, not that big of a deal. You know, Shane Burgos is the real deal. Um, you know, and then he picked up another win against Danny Henry uh, back in July of this year. So, Amir Khani is, is as tough as they come. He's, he's uh, one of those guys that you're right. He does have a weird herky-jerky kind of style. But, but make no mistake, going to the ground with him is no uh, – it's no man's land. You, you just don't want to do it. And Edson fought a really good fight. Uh, I kind of I'm with you on this. I think Edson would be uh, really good to throw into the mix there at featherweight. You know, you've got guys like uh, like Max Holloway, right? Who who's a really good example of this. They're championship material, uh, but they've kind of fought everyone else in the division. They're kind of looking for these fresh faces, these these Calvin Caters, uh, the Shane Burgos, you know, and, and Edson Barboza, I wouldn't be, I would not be mad if they were to pit him against somebody such as Max Holloway or put him even against Calvin Cater. Um, and I know that they're trying to make a, a, a Cater and, and Holloway matchup. If that was to fall through or even, uh, you know, let's say the loser or the winner of this weekend, you know, that wouldn't be, uh, wouldn't be a bad decision at all. Or, or even Shane Burgos coming back, you know, and you've got guys like Josh Emmett who are perpetually in the mix. Uh, You've got your Michael Johnsons. I mean, you've got a lot of people to kind of think about at featherweight and where Edson is 
uh, at in his career. Hey, I like him at featherweight. I thought he done. I thought he he done enough to win against Dan Ige. Um, you know, moving forward, you know, I'm I'm really curious to see how this this Edson Barboza situation plays out, and even more so after Saturday. Yeah, I, I think uh, I agree with him winning his last fight as well. I think he, you know, Inge, it was a close fight, but I do also thought I, I did think that Barbosa did enough to win that fight. And the fight against Paul Felder, you know, was also a very close fight. And I know that was at lightweight. And uh, if, for one thing, I'm kind of glad that happened. If that means we're going to get Barbosa for a long term at featherweight, I love the fight with Max Holloway. I think that's a great five round fight to make in terms of where both guys at in their fight career. You know, I know Calvin Cater's on his way up. Uh, but, you know, I think him and Holloway is a great matchup to make. But there are some other fights for Calvin Cater that you can make in terms of fresh matchups. Both Holloway and Barbosa have fought really the who's who of their respective divisions. Holloway at 45, and then, of course, what we've seen from Barbosa at 55 most of his career now, two fights into his featherweight career. I think that's a great fight to make because, I mean, it doesn't have to be a title eliminator. Not every fight has to be a clear-cut number one contender fight. And there's still a lot of questions about what the UFC is doing with that beat. And if him and Yair are going to be rebooked and if it's going to be rebooked when, you know, I thought we'd already kind of hear something by now. I believe, you know, Yair won the fight in late November, December, which would mean that announcement should be coming soon. And we've just not heard it yet. And for a while, I thought maybe the UFC was working on Zabit and Volkanovski for Fight Island. And now Dana's pretty much confirmed that the winner of Zombie and Ortega will be the next fighter to fight Volkanovski. So that sort of leaves a beat in a little bit of a limbo. And it opens up whatever the, I guess, number two contender would be. So Holloway and Barbosa would be a fun fight to, to possibly get done. Maybe early January, the UFC is going to have a lot of uh, card openings there. Josh Emmett, I know, just got back on the pads. So that's great news to hear that he's hitting pads again. So he possibly could be geared up for an early fight or for a fight early next year. The UFC also announced this week Arnold Allen and Jeremy Stevens going to fight. So another chance for Arnold Allen to kind of continue to grow. Uh, was maybe personally hoping that he'd fight more of a uh, younger guy. I mean, he's got wins over Gilbert Melendez and Nick Lentz, all guys who have been around for a long time. So now he has another veteran to that list. Was hoping maybe Arnold Allen would be next for a guy like Shane Burgos or Dan Inge or even Hakeem Dawadu, who's on a winning streak as well. But nonetheless, good to see Arnold Allen staying in that mix. So again, featherweight, always a fun division. Uh, one of my favorite divisions besides featherweights, probably that bantamweight division, Josh, and this weekend, uh, bantamweight main event, there was a lot of questions about what was really on the line in this main event. It, it felt really weird that, you know, Saturday morning before the Marlon Morris corey Sanhagen fight, we still didn't really know if Aljamain Sterling was the number one contender, and a lot of people was sort of thinking that if Magic Marlon comes in here and just absolutely dusts Sanhagen, he would leapfrog Sterling, considering he has a knockout win over Aljamain, and he would fight Peter Yan. Uh, ends up not happening. Ends up being the opposite. Corey Sanhagen has a great game plan. I believe Marlon Moraes said that Sanhagen was a better dominant Cruz, and I sort of said that's an interesting comparison, and it turns out to be 100% true as Sanhagen uses his great movement, almost a little bit dominant Cruz-like, but then throws just a beautiful spinning back hook kick almost, lands off the, the crown of Marlon Moraes' head, drops him, Tumbles over. Sanhagen gets it done on the ground about a minute into the second round. Uh, clean performance, a fight that Sanhagen needed. I think a lot of people um, maybe wrote him off after how quickly Aljamain Sterling submitted him in that last fight. Uh, Sanhagen, though, now jumps right back to that top five of the Bantamweight division. What did you make of Sanhagen's performance this weekend? Uh, I've been telling people for a while, and I was one of the people who picked Sanhagen to beat Aljo. Uh, yeah, I think I think nine times out of ten, 
when you put Sanhagen against Sterling, I still think Sanhagen probably pulls through about six or seven times um, just based on pure skill, right? Uh, you know, Alja is a very competent grappler. I mean, excellent grappling. Uh, but I just think Corey's, Corey's stand-up is something that's absolutely slept on. And you're exactly right. I like that comparison, a, a little bit better, uh, more dominant duh, dominant cruise. Um, so now we're in this kind of position where we're gridlocked at Bantamweight because you've got Marlon Marais at number three, Corey is now at number two, and Aljo is at number one. Uh, of course, Aljo submitted uh, Corey. Corey knocked out Marais, and Marais knocked out Aljo. I mean, what a time to be alive. Am so I right? much so much for MMA, man. <laughs> um, you know, okay, so this is actually a little lesser-known fact uh, after Saturday. Corey Sanhagen is going to be sidelined for 180 days due to a cornea, uh, an eye issue. Um, so I think that in this 180 days, it's going to be well enough time for, you know, Aljo to jump up uh, – sorry, challenge for the title. I don't think he gets it done against Peter Yan. I, I wish I could say that I thought Aljo would win, but I just, I can't see him getting it done against, against Peter Yan. Um, and I think in the meantime, TJ Dillashaw comes back. He's of course going to enter right back into the top four. Uh, you know, you give him a Marlon Marais who now has, you know, I thought Marlon lost the fight against Jose, uh, Jose Aldo. And then before that, you know, he, he got kind of, uh, tuned up by Henry Cejudo so I think that would be an excellent fight. You know, you got TJ Dillashaw against Marlon Marais or even a returning Corey Sanhagen. Um, but Bantamweight is truly one of the most exciting divisions right now. And you've got guys on the on the edge, too. You've got these Frankie Edgars, these Pedro Munozes. Uh, unfortunately, and I say unfortunately with the most respect possible, you have Jose Aldo still in this division. Uh, Dominic Cruz has yet to call it quits, which I'm honestly holding out and hoping we get a Cruz, Aldo, uh, retirement fight. Uh, but you've got these guys who are kind of surging right now, you know, the Marlon Veras and the Cody Stamens and, and uh, it's a very exciting division, but as far as the title picture, I can't see anybody but Sandhagen or TJ Dillashaw beating Peter Yan. Uh, I just don't think Aljo is, is well equipped enough on the feet to get it done. And Aljo is going to take that fight in November, I believe, is what, or I'm sorry, December, the end of December. December the 12th. Yeah, it's the same card as Nunez and Anderson. It'll be a double title bill there, I believe. Uh, Dan also confirmed Nunez will headline that card. So the co main event will be Peter Yan and Aljamain Sterling. The funny thing was, I was going to bring him up to you because I know he, he's one of your guys. You know, Corey Sandhagen uh, made no, you know, he did not mix his words at all. He said, you know, he understood that he wasn't next in line for the title. Aljamain deserved the shot. He said that. I think once you're uh, new, you know, once you win a big bantamweight fight, you pretty much say someone else deserves the title shot. That's always a good look. And Sterling will fight for the title. Sanhagen said, you know, he's interested in, in the two biggest names in the division, TJ Dillashaw, when he gets back early 2021. And, of course, Frankie Edgar's finally got that big win at Bantamweight after it sort of uh, lingered for a while. But now with Edgar at Bantamweight, he's obviously a big name to match as well. You mentioned Dominic Cruz, Jose Otto still in the mix as well. You kind of wonder what happens with Cody Garbrandt now. Does he maybe reconsider flyweight and, and come back down to Bantamweight where he has that big knockout and he's a former champion? Maybe the cut just too much. You know, not really sure what happens with Garbrandt there. Uh, and you mentioned there's, there's a lot of names that we're not talking about as well. Jimmy Rivera is a guy who, who's always sort of around the big win over Cody Stammen. I know he's had a couple losses against top-tier guys, but he's in the mix as well. Uh, Bantamweight's a real fun division to make, uh, to, to match make going forward. Uh, when you look at, you know, Peter Yan, I, I know you sort of said you only really see a couple guys beating him. 
when we get to to Peter Yan and Sterling, what do you think happens though if Sterling's able to get that fight on the ground? Do you do you think that changes sort of the aspect of the way that fight goes, or are you pretty confident that Yan will be able to a defend the takedown or b get back to his feet? Uh, I think I think I feel pretty confident in uh, in Peter Yan's grappling. I mean, we've seen uh, you know we've seen him fight some grapplers now. We've seen him fight you know a guy uh, with a Brazilian jiu-jitsu black belt who you know <laughs> doesn't really use it all that all that much. But you know Jose Aldo, you know we've seen him uh, against Uriah Faber. You know Faber's definitely an underrated grappler. So we've we've seen him fight grapplers before, and it kind of all goes the same way. You know he kind of dictates the pace and and where the fight takes place and. And uh, I don't know. I think I think there's something special in in Peter Yawn in the the simplicity of him. You know, he has a textbook one two. Uh, he has an excellent pace and excellent pressure. But I think it's going to take an elite striker to get him out of there. Someone such as T.J. Dillashaw. And I'm a little uh, biased just because of the the Bang Muay Thai uh, ties that I have uh, with T.J. But I'm a little I'm a little biased, but I think TJ can get it done. I think that Corey Sanhagen is a guy who can get it done. You know, we kind of seen his diversity on the feet. Uh, you know, we've seen him. Corey's like a, a dominant cruise, but he's also kind of like a, a Nick Diaz, like a prime Nick Diaz, where he just kind of walks you down and, and you can hit him, but it doesn't really it's not like it really affects him all that well. And I I really like Corey Sanhagen right now. And the entire elevation fight team is just surging right now, man. There's something in the water in Colorado. Yeah, I think getting to work in that altitude, and then when you you know you have more and more guys come up, that's more and more different levels of sparring partners. And those guys are all making each other a lot better. Uh, since we're talking about bantamweight, it sort of serves a, as a good little segue here. The UFC's got a great bantamweight division, and, and Peter Yan, obviously, the face of it right now. But there's a lot of matches to make going forward. But there's a lot of people starting to argue, especially on Twitter, that maybe for the first time in a long time. Uh, the UFC doesn't have one of the best divisions, as a lot of people are all on board with the Bantamweight division in Bellator, as Bellator's really added a lot of different guys in that 135 division, man. I mean, you know, Juan Archuleta sitting up there at the top. You got Patricky Mix right there as well. Can't forget about Horiguchi, who's fighting between uh, 25 and 35 and going back and forth between Japan and, of course, with Bellator, uh, a guy who at one time was in the UFC and the UFC kind of dropped the ball with after the Demetrius Johnson matchup there. Sergio Pettis now in UFC, just got a big win. Brett Johns, another guy who left the UFC after two wins in a row to go to Bellator. Ricky Medeas, Leonardo Higo, Josh Hill is down there. Jared Scoggins just signed. James Gallagher always going to get a mainstream fight there. I mean, there's so many big names. And then Bellator just announced that they signed Magomed Magomedov, who is the one loss on Peter Yan's record. He now heads over to Bellator as well. So, you know, Josh, it's been a long time coming. Bellator has been around for, you know, a, a lot longer than I think people even realize. And while they've lingered around, I don't think we've ever really been able to say that Bellator has had a better division in any of the divisions in the UFC. But for the first time, there's a lot of people starting to whisper and chatter that Bellator is uh, secretly, slowly, but now have a talent-rich Bantamweight division. Uh, and that's not all. Bellator's signed multiple guys here lately. It seemed like it was kind of under wraps that they've been working. A lot of times Bellator has gotten into some hot water for uh, uh, signing guys who maybe don't have the experience level, uh, even can feeding. I, I guess we've heard a lot of talk, you know, when you, especially when you mentioned like Michael Page and some of the matchmaking they've done. Uh, but Bellator really went out and signed a bunch of guys, Justin Gonzalez, Sean Tweed. We mentioned Scoggins, and we mentioned a bunch of the UFC guys, Brett Johns, Jeremy Kennedy, uh, Russell Kobloff, Bobby Volker, all signing 
with Bellator. And then Jaleel Willis, a guy from my neck of the woods, he's from the western side of Tennessee. But he's a guy that I was, uh, I was big, really wanting to work with because I seen UFC potential with him. Uh, he doesn't get the UFC contract. They invited him to come on to the Contender Series. He says, no, thank you. Fights uh, one more time in LFA and inks a big deal with Bellator. Now this weekend, man, first Bellator fight, you're going to fight a champion or a former champion. I mean, that's this is a big deal. Bellator is really starting to make some waves, and uh, they got a show this weekend with Chris Cyborg in action. What do you make of everything going on with Bellator? Is this almost a, a smokescreen to just sort of catch some headlines and then fall off again, or are we – in 2020, 2021, going to see Bellator sort of pick up the pace a little bit and, and maybe solidify themselves at the number two or even start to make a run at some of the issues the UFC's had in the last couple of years. Well, it all starts with uh, with Scott Coker, the the guy that's kind of the the head honcho of, of Bellator. And, you know, he ran Strike Force, And honestly, I loved Strike Force, man. And I love going back now and watching those old Strike Force fights. You know, I think, I think Scott Coker is more than – competent as a not only as a as a, uh, a a fight promotion president i think he's more than competent as a businessman as well and i think that that at times uh mma kind of gets this perpetual shadow over it which is the ufc and it kind of smothers out all this other light uh which is you know the bellators your Ryzen, your one fc you know one fc probably has some of the deepest uh lighter weight divisions you know these flyweights bantamweights you know they've got some deep divisions full of talent man and it's all led now by by guys like demetrius johnson you know they signed uh, eddie alvarez they had signed sage northcutt you know so it's it's people jumping ship like that onto different promotions it kind of makes you wonder uh, how the ufc treats its employees and you kind of wonder if that's a, a large reason that a lot of these people from the ufc go to bellator and i understand that uh that people still have to make their money. And, and Bellator is, I guess, if you were to rank by, uh, you know, biggest and most known, you know, it would definitely be the UFC at number one. And then Bellator is a, a, a quick number two. Um, but you just have to wonder how much better it is over there. You know, Cyborg saying that she absolutely loves it. You know, Sergio Pettis has said that he loves it. To answer your question about the Bantamweight division, uh, I made a comparison a moment ago that Corey Sanhagen had a little bit of a Nick Diaz trait about him. Patchy Mix is a full-blown Nick Diaz. I mean, that guy's got some pretty good stand-up, uh, you know, really crisp, clean boxing. And then if you if you go to the ground with Patchy Mix, it is absolutely over. Um, you know, him and, and Juan Archuleta put on an absolutely incredible fight. You know, scored two to two going into the fifth round. I mean, that was just a uh, a chess match. And and they're you know they're putting on some really good shows and they're signing a lot of really good people. Um, I would like to think that. At some point in our generation, we're gonna we're gonna hit this point where the UFC isn't the only one that's getting the mainstream success, and and you know I know Bellator's trying to to have these moments, these little viral moments, by feeding people cans, you know, like yeah. like more famously MVP would be the number one, you know, they're they're feeding him cans to try to get these these viral knockouts and to try to build these people up, and uh, I'm sorry that that little uh, get the Gallagher guy, I'm sorry I didn't. <laughs> forgot his name yeah uh, james, james gallagher james gallagher yeah they're they're kind of they're kind of doing the same thing to him they're kind of feeding these people uh to kind of put them on this pedestal where they can market it uh similar to the ufc with oh this person's undefeated with x amount of fights um they have a very a very very tough uh and full roster of people and you know they have people who i would almost compare uh to the best in the world you know douglas lima could be uh, the best welterweight in the world. 
you know? Uh, what really bums me out is we don't get these cross promotional fights um, to actually fully determine these, uh, these claims. You know what I mean? Uh, you know, Ryzen done one with, with Horaguchi and um, gosh, Caldwell, Horaguchi yeah. and Caldwell and Caldwell uh, ended up being kind of proved wrong that he was not the, <laughs> the greatest man of weight in the world, you know? So it's, I think we need some more of that, but I really like what Bellator's doing, man. People shit on Bellator a lot because they do sign, former wrestlers or they do they do sign uh quote unquote smoke shows you know in you know women like valerie uh laredo but they do they they also have the stars be born like valerie laredo and 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 they've got their douglas limas and unfortunately you know they're michael venom pages you know so they they're they're doing all the right things um to me though cody and i don't know if you'll agree on this to me um the production is what kind of gets it to me i feel like when i'm watching a ufc it's it's very it's bright and it's visual and i can see everything i feel like when i watch a bellator it's a little bit darker and i don't i don't like some of the colors that they use and i almost wonder if maybe subconsciously people don't tune in because of of these color schemes and and the marketing uh that they're doing does that make sense yeah i definitely get that you know people people get used to the high production value of the UFC and sometimes it's hard to take a step down uh you know with with anything of course you get used to the NFL it's hard to watch a secondary football league and same thing with any sport and I think people have just grown used to you know one main sport league you know over the years we've seen that you know there it used to be back in the 90s and the early 2000s before MMA took off you know every sports league really had a competitor uh, you know, the NFL, it seemed like everyone was, was gunning to also have professional football, whether it was the American Football League or the USFL or the XFL, you know, starting up. You know, everyone wanted to be a competitor. Pro wrestling, of course, had that same thing as well, where everyone wanted to be a competitor. And, and what it does is obviously it gives viewers a choice and an audience a choice, but it gave the athletes a choice. And that's the same thing with MMA right now. You know, for a lot of fighters, it's UFC or bust. You know, they don't understand that there's – you know, money and fame to be made elsewhere. It's just that everyone's become so accustomed to, if you don't make the USC, you don't make it. And that's really everybody's point of view. And it's same thing with any other athlete. If you're a basketball player, you tell yourself, if you don't make the NBA, uh, you, you know, you're, you're nothing. And I've someone who's been around basketball for a long time, you know, there's opportunities everywhere, all across the world. I've seen many very good basketball players in America, you know, have to just leave America. You have to go overseas. And we're seeing that a lot more with MMA fighters now. Of course, there's no real pride like there used to be. But 1FC, Cage Warriors, there's a lot of Russian shows that are starting to start back up once the pandemic's kind of over. Of course, Australian MMA has taken off. It won't be too long until they have their own shows that are starting to build back up big fan bases. But having a direct competitor in America is huge for athletes. And we've seen that over the year. Of course, Chris Cyborg uh, was never truly happy with what was happening in the UFC. Always felt like someone was overshadowing her. And, you know, it it sort of goes both ways. Of course, I'm never going to say Dana was always right because it's pretty obvious that Dana does a lot of things wrong in terms of the way he markets certain fighters and different things. And, of course, it's no secret. He's not the biggest Chris Cyborg fan. He never was, and he wasn't when she was on the roster. And she goes over to Bellator. And, you know, it's just one of those double-edged swords where, you know, Chris Cyborg wanted competition. She wanted to be featured, and now she goes to Bellator. And, of course, Scott Coker has dealt with Cyborg before, so he knows the most difficult part of Chris Cyborg is finding fights. And, you know, Arlene Blinko is who she's fighting this weekend. She's 13-7. and I think she's got a win over Leslie Smith. Uh, I really, it's the only name that's popping up in my head that she's beat. Looking it up real quick here. Amanda Bell, she's uh, had a win over, I mean, that's, that's really it. She fought 
you know, Julia, Julia Budd for the title uh, about a year or so ago. So, I mean, she has fought other big name featherweights, but that's not saying too much because there's not a lot of big name featherweights. So it's just one of those things with Bellator. They have a good, a good number of champions, a good fighters you want to see. Ryan Bader, you know, was starting to get hype. He was the champ champ, and then he loses the title. Juan Archuleta is a very good bantamweight. Douglas Lima, you mentioned, you know, maybe the best welterweight champion or the best welterweight fighter, period, in the world, uh, you know, based on style. You know, people will pay to see Douglas Lima. We're not really sure yet if people will see – people will pay to see Kamara Usman. Uh, Ema Lee McFarland at, at flyweight, people have already started to, to whisper that, you know, maybe her and Valentina somewhere down the road would be a fun fight to make. Uh, Patrico Pitbull's been around for, for a long time, more than people realize. So, you know, Bellator's got some, some good champions, but there's just not any name value, Josh. And that's sort of wh- where I go from there, you know, for Bellator to really be relevant. I don't know if it's signing prospects. It, it's, you know, like I said, Jaleel Willis is a guy I've loved for a long time. I remember, 2014, 2015, uh, the MMA show I was helping promote was based out of East Tennessee. We were mostly in the Knoxville area, and we wanted to go to Nashville. And I had proposed that if we if we're going to have to go to Nashville, we need to do sort of an East versus West thing and take some of the best fighters from the Tri Cities, you know, our neck of the woods, from uh, Johnson City, Bristol, Knoxville, these areas, and place them against some of these good fighters from the Memphis areas. And the two guys that I had circled that I wanted to negotiate with was Jaleel Willis and Bryce Mitchell. And uh, luckily it didn't happen because Jaleel and Bryce would have whooped our guys' tails and it would have made us look pretty bad because they're both, you know, world caliber fighters. You know, Bryce Mitchell, a top 15 uh, bantamweight fighter, or a top 15 featherweight fighter, and Jaleel Willis now sides with Bellator and immediately gets a lightweight co-man event spot. But, uh, you know, moving on from that, again, signing prospects always gives you the option of building your own star, having a homegrown star. Uh, but, you know, what, what, Bellator needs is a name is they need someone with a lot of name value and I'm just not sure if they're going to be able to do that now because of the way contract negotiations and everything works out you see they, they lost Michael Chandler who was a bigger name two to three years ago you could argue but still that's a big loss for Bellator Hector Lombard they lost him when he was at his peak which again he was in his peak in Bellator fell apart when he got to the UFC you talked about strike force uh, Josh and what Scott Coker did there was capitalize on names. He had Fedor, he had Nick Diaz, he had Chris Cyborg, he had Ronda Rousey become that homegrown name. He had many guys that he was able to build up and, and make even bigger names than they were when they got there. How does he get a big name, not a guy who's on a two-fight losing streak or not a prospect who's not getting enough fights booked? How can Scott Coker make Bellator appealing enough to sign a top five guy away from the UFC what does he need to do besides open the checkbook you know you actually just mentioned cyborg and it made me think back a moment ago to the fact that both of the cyborgs worked for Scott Coker and and you know there's got to be something to Scott Coker where people like him people uh you know they they seemingly they could start their career with him in strike force and end their career with him in Bellator um I think that opening the checkbook can only get him so far though. Um, you've got to wonder how many of these people are, or how many of these fighters, excuse me, um, how many of them are, are truly looking for competitive fights. Um, and, you know, somebody like Cyborg, you know, I'm sure she was very hesitant about joining Bellator because of the fact that essentially anywhere she goes, they have to build a division around her. Right. Um, you know what I mean? And, and I think, 
as much name value as, as standing and knocking, let's say four people out back to back, as much name value as that'll bring you, I think you almost get twice the amount of name value in, in these wars, you know, these Michael Chandler versus uh, Eddie Alvarez type fights, you know what I mean? So I'm, I'm not really sure. I'm sure that people, people look at the level of, of competition, you know, and they probably do look at the checkbook and, and, you know, sometimes money talks, you know, and, and it's very hard. It's, it's a very weird, it's a very weird topic to cover because there's so many things that we just truly don't know. You know what I mean? Do you think if Bellator and, you know, I, I love that you mentioned this because it's something I didn't even think about, but you mentioned their visuals and the way the production looks, you know, do you think if they spiced it up, like say they went on, say, you know, for a while they sort of did this. It, it was very brief though. I think when they had Shell and Vanderlei who have, again are big names, but no one's real interested in seeing, you know, 45 year old Vanderlei and 42 year old Shell, but they, they, they sort of did this, or maybe it was Tito they did this for, but you know, bring out the big stage, the big videotron, pyrotech, you know, pyrotechnics oh, yes. and all that. Do you think that helps or does that make people sort of scoff and compare them more to a pro wrestling base? Do you, do you think that's something that can help them maybe go that route or do they need to focus more on just the, the fights? So I, have, I have two opinions on this. Um, the first one would be the visuals. I think when people look at these visuals like that, you know, with Tito walking out in a top hat and, and, you know, just looking ridiculous and they've got these fireworks inside. Uh, part of me does think that it's after we've got used to the professionalism of the UFC, I do think that, that some of these antics are kind of lost in translation almost to the point where you're right. Like it is comparable to, um, to a, a pro wrestling show or to uh, like a sideshow almost. Right. So then you take that and you account for the fact that they do have these sideshow ass fights where they've got, you know, God rest his soul, but they have Kimbo slice versus dot off 5,000 or they, they've got, uh, you know, an aged rampage versus an aged Fedor, you know? And I think that honestly hurts their credibility uh, a little more when you, when you truly, sit down and think about it because you know if there's a ufc uh and a bellator on it the same night you know nine times out of ten people are going to watch the ufc because a these are people they know b you know the the promotion is a lot better so you're more apt to hear about a ufc than you are a, a bellator card and that's just kind of a fact you know even with the big cards and, and big names uh you're still you've still got a little bit of marketing uh left to do before you can really start interfering in that that um the same frame as a UFC fight. You, you understand what I'm saying? So you take that into account, but then I think a lot of people watch Bellator for this sort of weird sideshow esque, um, like these sideshow esque moments where they, they see two people definitely aged and they say, well, you know what? Yeah, let's turn it on for fun. They turn it on, they watch for 15 minutes, you know, until, uh, let's say, uh, Fedor knocks out Chael and it just looks terrible. And then they say, all right, well, we're done with this. You know what I mean? Uh, so I think that honestly hurts their case when they do outlandish fights like that or, or, you know, the Kimbo, I remember watching the Kimbo and the Dada fight. And, uh, you know, if you've, if you followed the Kimbo and, and Dada beef, uh, you know, being that I live in Florida now, this was a very real beef. <laughs> Yeah. Uh, but seeing it transpire in the cage the way it did, it just, it didn't look well at all. And, and frankly, I turned it off after that fight. I, I turned it off. I didn't watch Bellator for a while after that fight, just because it just, it, uh, it wasn't what I was searching for. <laughs> right. 
Yeah, and you know, I, I think that was the issue for a while. Is Bellator sort of got comfortable being the number two, and when you're the number two, you can do things like that. You can have like you know your your fights that you, you sort of grab headlines by any means necessary. And if that means including Kimbo Slice or you know these aging veterans, of course you're going to do that because then you have the ability to hope that someone's going to tune in to see Fedor against Rampage and hope that they turn, they tune in early and see your up-and-comers on, on the prelims or on the, the undercard, so to speak, the co-main event. And, uh, you know, Bellator is now sort of in that weird spot where they're number two, but I think, you know, even Scott Coker said, you know, maybe maybe now we need to start relying on the future, start building our own stars. You know, they got a huge fight coming up. You know, this weekend's card's pretty good, but the card on uh, October, the end of the month card, the Halloween card on the 29th, you know, Gegard Mousasi against Doug Lima is a great fight. You know, Gegard Mousasi, a guy who's beat a lot of big names and even fights he's lost. It's almost like Chris Weidman-ish where he's, he's been winning a lot of the fights he's lost over the last few years. And then Doug Lima, of course, as you mentioned, one of the best guys in the world. And these guys are, are fighting, I believe, at middleweight. So this, this is a big fight coming up at the end of the month. But then you jump into November, and, you know, Corey Anderson was one of these guys who left the UFC and – you know, kind of seeing greener pasture over there in Bellator will get promoted more, has a chance to maybe rise up to a title pitcher, and he gets matched up against No Mercy, Melvin Manoff, who's been around for forever and can, you know, is, is a kickboxing and a striking legend, but he's also at the end of his career. It's almost weird matchmaking to to set up, and I don't really want to say that because I, I, you know, Melvin Manoff can can beat and hurt anybody, and Corey Anderson, you know, pretty famously has a pretty weak jaw, but. It's almost like a layup to kind of get Corey Anderson in the door, get a big win, a big finish, get on the mic, and call out, you know, whoever he wants to in terms of light heavyweight or a heavyweight. So that's sort of where Bellator is. You know, there's just so many different ways. And, you know, Czech Congo and, and, and Tim Johnson was their main event over in France. Uh, you know, MVP is a guy, you know, they're trying to push, but it's still hard to match him with anyone who's a top-tier sort of talent. So it's such an interesting organization. But uh, Josh, let me end the Bellator talk by asking you this. Do you think within the next, let's go year, next calendar year, do you think there's any top five UFC fighters that will jump ship and side with Bellator that will, that will gain a little traction with, uh, with the MMA media? Um, hmm. Well, first off, before I, before I jump into this, I just want to say that Corey Anderson, uh, he has a notoriously weak job, but he is, notoriously an idiot as well for that ramble <laughs> after after you know he beat um gosh uh the the little crazy eyed dude uh johnny walker was it johnny walker yes he yeah. beat johnny walker and he said there's levels and he got leveled <laughs> in um as far as people jumping ship to to bellator i truly don't know i I'm almost wondering if somebody who let's say, you know, let's jump back to Bantamweight. Let's say somebody like Pedro Munoz who dropped a very close decision to, to a Frankie Edgar, uh, you know, Pedro Munoz has been around for a while, but he really skyrocketed up uh, whenever he beat uh, Cody Garbrandt. Right. And then after that kind of went stale, you know, so I'm wondering if people like that uh, and, you know, Corey Anderson is the, the, the most recent, famous example of this you know Corey Anderson beat somebody who I don't think the UFC thought he could beat I don't think they picked uh Corey Anderson to beat Johnny Walker but Corey Anderson beat Johnny Walker and he got beat in his next fight and I'm almost wondering if maybe somebody like Pedro Munoz who's 
you know, Pedro's went on the on the record a couple times saying, hey, yeah, that last fight was bullshit. I want a rematch. And, you know, let's say the UFC turns him down for a rematch. Then then what's he going to do, you know? So I think maybe a Pedro Munoz jumping ship could be uh, very uh, believable, I guess. Yeah. Uh, or somebody, you know, even, even a guy like Kevin Lee. You know, Kevin Lee's had a lot of success in the UFC. His little brother fights in Bellator. Uh, you know, somebody like Kevin Lee, who's, who's not had the career trajectory that I think any of us thought he would have. Um, you know, he, he got up there, he got that big fight with, uh, with Tony Ferguson, you know, he ended up getting beat by Tony, but he still, he showed a lot of heart. Uh, you know, then he got beat by Iaquinta, you know, had a, a outstanding performance against Gregor Gillespie. And then he gets kind of shut right back down by, by Charles Oliveira. So, you know, he's another one of those guys that I would not be surprised if he, if he jumped ship. Um, these, it's these guys who, um, they have these kind of big moments and then they just kind of go stale afterwards. Those are the guys that I think Bellator might be after just for that one moment where they kind of blew up and then they, and then they kind of, uh, I don't want to say, uh, burn out, but, but you, you get the picture. Yeah. Well, I was thinking sort of something similar. I was thinking former champions, you know, some of the names that come to my mind would be like, yeah, Chris Weidman, Tyron Woodley, uh, guys like that. Maybe even someone like a Kelvin Gastelum or depending on what happens on Halloween, you know, an Anderson Silver, Uriah Hall, you know, the UFC, uh, you know, it seems, you know, the winner there or the loser of that fight there is not really in the cusp of what they want to do at middleweight. Both those guys have big name value. If Silva wants to keep fighting, that one seems unlikely, but Uriah Hall definitely could be in the mix. So I can see the, you know, Bellator definitely jumping at a former champion because, of course, both those guys do have that name recognition. Some of the bigger names that just consider, though, I'm definitely not making a suggestion or, you know, speculating here, but, uh, you know, a guy like Tony Ferguson. I mean, you know, what's, where does the UFC go with a guy like Tony Ferguson who was undefeated for so long in his UFC career, you know, on a winning streak for so long in his UFC career, uh, gets absolutely just beat up by Justin Gagey, and now really his name's kind of been just dropped off. No one's really talking about him. Of course, Poirier and McGregor angling for a fight. Dan Hooker and Nate Diaz angling for a fight. Paul Felder, who knows where they'll go there. Charles Oliveira is the name that's still in the mix, but not sure Ferguson wants to go that route. It seems Tony Ferguson's pretty content with only fighting a top three guy. Of course, uh, Michael Chandler in that mix as well. You almost wonder what happens if, if the UFC and Tony Ferguson really have a falling out. Uh, that would be a good name and a big relevant name for Bellator. And, you know, that's, Absolutely. To, me, that's to me what it would take to really get Bellator – a little bit of a push to sort of go from that sideshow little brother to the UFC to, to potentially, you know, a rating war if they were to go on the same night. Yeah. They've got to, they've got to get somebody big. I, the only reason I don't think Tony Ferguson will is because I think Tony Ferguson, even though he's, uh, I don't want to use the term exposed, but I think he, he got really beat up in his last fight, but he is still super dangerous to the lightweight title picture. Um, and you know, you mentioned Anderson Silva a minute ago. I'm hoping that Anderson Silva would call it quits after, uh, the spectacular career that he has had, you know, after his fight with, um, with Uriah Hall, I was thinking earlier when I was at work and this is just such a random thought, but I had the greatest idea. You put Anderson Silva against Yoel Romero. That, that is a fight right there. Ooh, that, that is a good fight. And I don't, I don't know how they missed that. Yeah, I mean, I almost think it's uh, the fear of 
both guys being counter strikers of, hey, that's a great fight and it, it could have some fireworks, but there's always that risk when you pit two great counter strikers together that they sit there and stare at each other for three rounds or, <laughs> heaven forbid, five rounds. No, so, Adesanya and you will. <laughs> yeah, I really think that's kind of how they look at that is because, I mean, you know, Silva's sort of almost at times got to be duped into fighting. Like, you really have to, you know, if you really want to fight Anderson Silva, I mean, you got to have confidence that you're going to knock him out before he gets going or he's going to get going. And then even at his age, he still has the ability to make you miss and counter you. And then with Romero, I mean, that's a crazy risk. I don't even know if the risk is the right word, almost idiotic to kind of wake him up and make him start swinging at you. Because, you know, we've seen in the past, that if you can kind of lull him to sleep, Romero will accidentally go 15 minutes without throwing any big strikes. So you really have to put yourself in danger to, to get Romero to, really fight you and again Romero's had a long UFC career and I still think a lot of casual fans are shocked when they find out this is a former Olympian in wrestling because it's just something he doesn't use so uh yeah definitely a fight that the UFC's missed I would hope that we're not to the point where that fight happens I I've said this for three years but I hope the next Anderson Silva fight is the last but as we've seen for three years you just never know with a guy like that if he goes in there and beats up Uriah Hall I mean I'm sure there's going to be people calling for uh, who knows? Silva, Weidman, two. Uh, Silva against really anybody in that middleweight division. Let's hope that Sean Shelby and Mick Maynard do not listen to our podcast. Yeah, because that's just a, a risky fight. Uh, going back to lightweight real quick, Josh, before we jump ahead to the upcoming UFC Fight Night card, uh, we talked on the, the last podcast about the um, – uh, the the charity sparring match between Conor McGregor and Dustin Poirier. Luckily, it looks like that's sort of off the table, but it does look like we are getting very close to a legit fight between McGregor and Poirier. Uh, Conor McGregor taking to social media and verbally accepting the fight on January 23rd. McGregor had uh, said that he really wanted to fight in 2020. Uh, Dana essentially came out and said, man, we're booked. You know, we've, we've got all these shows taken care of. Uh, we're not going to accommodate a card just for McGregor, but we have the 23rd open. And Connor quickly jumps on social media responds. Uh, but the one big thing there, and I think we talked about this a couple podcasts ago, is that uh, the UFC and McGregor, I would say, have mutual interest in not doing a UFC Apex show. Uh, we've seen sporting events all across the country for good reason or for not, if you look at some of the COVID-19 numbers and outbreaks and such. But nonetheless, a lot of sports venues are opening up, some to 25% capacity, some 50% capacity. If you go to Florida where you're at, I mean, you could pretty much do whatever you want now. So with that in mind, Conor McGregor's interested in fighting. Dustin Poirier's interested in fighting. They want to do a show. They want to do a Cowboy Stadium in Dallas Obviously, we're living in the craziest year uh, in a long, long time. So obviously, we do not know how things will look in the next three months. But when you look at this, Josh, how do you see, not the fight going, because you know that's a whole different conversation. How do you see this planning going? Do you think this is something the UFC will look at and strongly consider starting to work with Jerry Jones and, and Dallas and putting together a massive show to welcome fans back? Or do you think the UFC punches the brakes? And, uh, I mean, you, you do got to remember that Dana White is, is a, a big Donald Trump supporter, big Republican, so therefore he's sort of ready to open things back up. To be honest, I think me and my wife were talking yesterday, I'm very surprised the UFC's not come out and already allowed a small number of fans back in attendance, to just, just be personally honest with you. Uh, so I wonder where you're at here. Do you think this is something UFC sort of looks at and says – this is our biggest star asking for fans back. Um, you think this is something they're going to move forward with? 
See, I'm on the fence because uh hey i love i love the no fans like i love i love the silence i love hearing every punch like i love everything uh i'm what i'm on the fence about is the conor mcgregor usc situation um we've kind of seen mcgregor not get his way or maybe disagree with something the usc has said or 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 done and then he's just okay i'm retired yeah he's kind of pulled the retirement card a couple times now to the point where you can be the biggest star in the world. And I've said this a couple of times now, you can be the biggest star in the world. If you're not, um, if you're not a very good person out of the cage, people don't want to really see you in the cage with Conor McGregor. It's almost different because people want to see one way or another. They want to see him get his mouth shut or they want to see him uh, do a, a crazy knockout. And, right. you know, Conor's just an absolute star. If, if not the biggest star uh, in mixed martial arts today, I mean, the biggest star that we've ever had, so I'm on the fence. I think that the UFC is probably holding Connor back. Uh, excuse me. I was, I was talking directly into the mic. I'm not sure if, if the UFC is kind of holding back uh, just so that they can get the fan attendance, the, the gate from a Connor McGregor fight. I think right now, if, if in the next, let's say month, uh, we find out whether things are going to start opening back up or we're going to continue this lockdown situation. I think then we have to make a decision. Uh, which is, hey, let's move forward with the fans since we're allowed to. And you put uh, Conor McGregor on that card where they can welcome fans back. Him and Dustin Poirier can have an absolute slug, just a, a slug fest. Uh, or, you know, if if we're not able to bring fans back just yet, then just say, hey, let's, let's fucking do it. You know, we got to move forward with this guy. And not only this guy, but this division, right? Because after Khabib and Justin Gaethje at the end of this month, after that fight – uh, we really need we really need this this Conor McGregor Dustin Poirier matchup to happen, or we need a Tony Ferguson Dustin Poirier matchup, or a Tony Ferguson uh, Michael Chandler matchup to happen to see where we can go with this division. So, I think that there's a lot of things at play here, and I think that the fans coming back or not coming back is definitely one of them. Uh, but I think more than that, I think we just have to see where this division goes um, post. Khabib Gaethje so I'm I'm really interested I'm man I'm indifferent I don't really want fans back I mean it'll be nostalgic having fans back but at the same time I'm perfectly fine without it uh I truly don't think a Conor McGregor fight is gonna do that much worse without fans though I I mean go ahead um I'm sorry I uh I think that there will probably be as many, if not more, pay-per-view buys than, than usual, especially with Dustin Poirier. I mean, that, that matchup, you know, it's happened once before. And it was pretty big. But I think now, after we've seen the trajectory of both of these guys' careers, I think this is a fight where people are going to say, all right, this is going to be bloody. It's going to be brutal. Let's pay the, the $60, $60, whatever it is. And I think people are going to buy this pay-per-view, you know. So, um, I don't know. I'm, I'm on the fence. I think there's a lot of stuff at play. And I think now is – it's just a waiting game to see. I hate to say, see what happens in November, but essentially that's kind of uh, what we're waiting on at this point. I really can't see the UFC doing a McGregor fight with no fans. I I just think that's sort of their ace in the pocket because you, I think I said on the last show, you know, I I really just based on what the UFC and that group has done in the past, you know, they, they wouldn't ease back into having fans of the show. I just don't think that's Dana White's way. 
I really don't think they would do a small apex show allowing 25% capacity or family and friends, or they would go to the MGM grand and do, you know, 25, 30% attendance. I just don't think that's really like the Dana White way. Almost when, you know, they decided to really do shows during the pandemic, he could have easily just went to the apex, but that wouldn't have grabbed headlines. He, you know, has fight Island makes it this big spectacle. So I really think, uh, when it flip-flops and when Dana's ready for fans. Because like I said, I'm really surprised they've not already had fans back. But it leads me to still believe that it's because they want to do a, a big hoorah. You know, they want to do a massive show with, you know, a huge crowd. Because, I mean, you got to think, if they were to do something like Cowboy Stadium, even 50% capacity would be one of the biggest shows the UFC's done, at least in the last five or so years. So that would be huge, especially if you stacked it. If you had McGregor and Poirier, and then you add some other fights. Maybe you have Ferguson and Chandler on the card, too, and you go get a, a big middleweight and bantamweight fight, and you just have all these these big names on the card. You know, you could make it almost a UFC 200, UFC 205, UFC 100 style show or the first Fight Island show. You know, you could do a big event like that. So I really think that's what the UFC is banking on when it comes to McGregor. Of course, if we get to November, we get to December and things still aren't really looking up, uh, then the UFC sort of has to answer another question on how they want to go about it. You mentioned the, the pay-per-view buys. The UFC has done great pay-per-view numbers here since the pandemic started, since they've had no fans. But I, I still think you just lose some of that luster. You know, you lose a little bit of that aura with a Conor McGregor fight if you don't have fans, even if it's a great fight, even if you have the pay-per-view numbers. And I think that'll be really the thing that holds it back. I'm not saying that's the reason Dana didn't have a date available in 2020. I just think uh, that that's where we're at. And I think Conor McGregor knows it. I think he knows that he loses a little bit of his, uh, you know, aura. He loses a little bit of that star power fame if he can't walk out to a roaring crowd. I mean, that's part of being, you know, a, a superstar fighter, you know, and that's, I, you know, Floyd Mayweather wouldn't fight during this pandemic. There's just no, there's just no way. It, it's part of the luster there. So that's the way I look at it. I, I think there's definitely going to be some negotiations, but when I read that the, the tweet, McGregor saying he wanted to do Cowboy Stadium in Dallas, I thought, you know, th this is, this is either A, going to be the thing that stops this fight from happening, or B, this is Dana White going, thank God, because we're going to be able to move forward. And, you know, once you do the big show, then you could do the smaller shows. Then you could do the 25% capacity in Vegas and, and maybe start slowly traveling around and going to some other places. But I think Conor McGregor, Dustin Poirier right now is the fight that they have in their back pocket. I also think doing Usman and Masvidal, which now is even more kind of circled, you know, as a potential fight, or even Jorge and Colby Covington is another one of those circled fights where that the UFC can have some plans to do some big fights when they do welcome fans back. But just seeing everything that's happened and seeing these NFL games with 25% fans, and I, I believe the, the baseball playoff games have a little bit of fans, I just think the UFC can't be too far behind and won't want to wait long but when they do it, they'll try to do it bigger than everybody else has. And that's just sort of me me judging the Dana White way and, and realizing that uh, he's not going to slowly move into anything. If he gets to go ahead to have fans, he's going to have a guy like Conor McGregor or a Jorge Masvidal or even potentially a Nate Diaz on speed dial. And I mean, think about it, man. I mean, Josh, we could be talking about a pay-per-view card at the end of January headlined by McGregor and Poirier with – 
Ferguson, Michael Chandler is your co-headliner, and Nate Diaz against Dan Hooker in, in your feature bout. I mean, it would be a lightweight Grand Prix right there in front of all sorts of different fans. I mean, it's, it's a crazy thing to think about, but you know in Dana White's mind, uh, those are the things kind of stirring in his head. Yeah, absolutely. And and once you kind of broke it down like that, I kind of understand it too. You know, uh, Con- you're right. Conor McGregor's not going to fight with no fans because that is part of the the, the aura of, of his performances. And and uh, yeah, I'm kind of with you. Stack that card up. I mean, if you can get Nate Diaz on it, get Nate Diaz. If you can get Jorge on it, you know, get Jorge, Colby. Uh, hell, put everybody you can on there, you know. Uh, it's just kind of one of those one of those events that that could blow the roof off and and start something, you know. And we could have UFC Texas set up, you know, before uh, before next summer. You know, they've they've got Fight Island now now Texas Island hell. <laughs> I love it. I think now that you said that, you might want to trademark that because you know. Dana will have some cool name for him, and he might even call it McGregor Island if it sells out the way they hope it does. I mean, they're gonna they're gonna do some crazy things there. Uh, Josh, let's jump into this weekend, man. We're, we're talking about some of these uh, future potential fights. Let's talk about the fights that are happening. Knock on wood, because you know how everything is nowadays. But uh, if, if there's been one fight that's been lined up that I, I've literally said my mixed martial art prayers about, it's really this fight coming up this weekend. It's Brian Ortega. It's Korean Zombie. These two have been going at it, man. It feels like for for almost a year back and forth now. It's been a long time since we've seen Ortega, not since the Holloway fight. Uh, Chan Sung Jung's got, you know, obviously needs no introduction. He's got some crazy, crazy wins. The the back elbow win against Yair Rodriguez. We mentioned all these great knockouts. That's got to be one of the craziest comeback knockouts uh, of all time in a fight he was probably losing. He's also got the big knockout win over Frank Edgar. Uh, Renato Mociano's got a win over him. We mentioned the Rodriguez fight. I mean, this is a guy who's put together a great run of fights, but still somehow always sort of sneaks under your radar when we're talking title challengers. A win this weekend pretty much guarantees that Zombie will be the next title challenger. So, so Josh, when you look at this fight, for me, this is a, a fight I'm so anxious for and so pumped for as a fan. But as an analyst, I really don't know which way I'm going, man, because, I mean, Ortega, you have to think, is going to be a whole new fighter after what happened with him and Max Holloway. And with Korean Zombie, it's just one of these guys that's hard to plan for, hard to game plan for. And it's been so long for both these dudes, you just really don't know what to expect. Yeah, I'm, I love Brian Ortega. Um, I, love, I love the grappling. I love the boxing. The Korean Zombie is so unpredictable, though. That is what's holding me back. I really I, I want to pick Brian Ortega to have an excellent comeback. Uh, to go in and, and maybe get the job done in like some sort of first round guillotine or, or uh, something, something wacky and something fast. But there's also this, uh, this kind of lingering thought that I'm having is what if Brian Ortega can't get this fight to the ground? You know, he had trouble getting Max Holloway to the ground. Every time he did, Max Holloway got right back up. Um, you know, Ortega really, he desperately needed to work on his wrestling in this time. What has it been? Two, two years now, three years that he's been off. Yeah, it's been a while. Uh, yeah, so wrestling is definitely something he needed to work on. Let's let's say that he did work on his wrestling. He has a few kind of kind of back pocket takedowns he can just rely on. Then I'm gonna go ahead and I'm gonna pick Ortega. But but the the Korean Zombie is just so uh, he's nasty. He just comes at you full force, full power, and he's he's beaten a lot of really good guys. And I think that when you when you think about the featherweight picture. 
the Korean zombie is one of those guys that kind of gets forgotten about because, uh, you know, he had to do his mandatory uh, military service and, mm-hmm. and he, you know, he comes back and he loses the, the craziest finish of all time. You know, the, the last second up elbow from, from Yair Rodriguez. So I, I don't think that people give the Korean zombie the respect he deserves, but I'm just not sure Brian Ortega is, I'm not sure if that was the fight to make, if that makes sense. I think, I think Brian's a little more dangerous than um, maybe uh, a Calvin Cater or even a Josh Emmett, you know, Josh Emmett's going to be out for a while, but, but you understand what I'm saying? Like to get to this next level, I think, I think that uh, Brian Ortega is a little bit more dangerous than the beat. Let's, let's say it like that. Right. And, you know, Chance Sung Jung, you, you mentioned he's been in there with so many great guys. you got to remember Chance Sung Jung's got a great, ga- a great ground game as well. It's just his stand-up is, is so unpredictable and wild, and he's got the ability to hurt and finish guys from everywhere and such good, clean striking. But this is a guy who's got one of, uh, I believe, two or three twister wins all time in the UFC. He, he's got a great ground game, whether he wants to actually use jiu-jitsu or just get back to his feet. He's very well-rounded he's a strong guy everybody who's ever fought the korean zombie has always talked about how strong he was you know he doesn't look like this big uh, you know scary looking featherweight but everyone's always talked about his strength Uh, with brian ortega he won't have Henry gracie i think that might be a a little bit of a side note to keep in mind for the fight that's his longtime coach has been in the corner of every single one of his fights he won't be with him on fight island as he tested positive so he won't have gracie with him Uh, but again I really wonder what Ortega will look like. I mean, any time in MMA history we've ever seen a fighter get not beat, you know, but but just really, I don't really want to say the word embarrassed because that kind of comes off really negative, but just a fight where you're outclassed completely. And that's what happened to Brian Ortega. I mean, Max Holloway was in there literally teaching him things during the fight where he's putting his hands up and moving him around. I mean, it was the craziest, one of the craziest things I've ever seen. Uh, one of the, you know, worst fall apart fights I've ever seen where it's just like, where is the Brian Ortega that knocked out Frank Yeager? Where's the Brian Ortega that had that submission against Cub Swanson and Mociano and all those fights? I mean, it just looked like it wasn't him. So you almost wonder if Ortega has changed anything. And you mentioned, man, it's been a long time. Brian Ortega's last fight was in December of 2018. So we're closing in on, on an almost two year layoff on a young, you know, at one time was because I mean, I don't know about you, but I picked Ortega to beat Max Holloway. I was I was pretty bought in to the Brian Ortega hype. So I was I was very shocked to see how the outcome of that fight looked. There's a lot of things that can happen in this fight. You know, you mentioned what happens if Ortega can't get it to the ground. Man, I'm almost the opposite. I wonder what happens if it does go to the ground. I mean, what is is Ortega that much better on the ground than zombie? You know, that's one of those questions I'd really like to find out. See, the, the, the way that I'm kind of looking at it is, is Brian Ortega has been submitting legitimate black belts uh, for quite a while and, and coming up under that Gracie lineage. I mean, uh, I'm under the same lineage, so I'm a little biased towards Gracie jiu-jitsu, but at the same time, you're looking at the purest forms of jiu-jitsu when you watch Brian Ortega fight. And, and the, the best example to, to give would be the Cub Swanson-Brian Ortega fight where he just readjusts his grip mid-choke and, and just strangles Cub. You know, at the end of that first round, he had, uh, he had threatened with an anaconda choke. I mean, Brian Ortega is one of those guys, if, if, if he can get something around you and, and choke you with it or, or break it, I mean, he's definitely going to give it a shot. But we've also seen he has some hammers when he, when he actually throws his hands. I mean, he – he did get, you know, and I hate using the term as well. He did get embarrassed by Max Holloway, but you have to look at that for what it was. He was actually rocking Max, you know, before that, Clay Guida, 
knocked out Frankie Edgar. First guy to finish Frankie Edgar. I mean, he's got some hammers for hands. So let's see, let's see how he puts it all together. You know, I'm hoping that, uh, that he can get it done because I'm really interested almost more than a Korean zombie Volkanovsky fight. I'm almost more interested in an Ortega, uh, Volkanovsky fight. I think that would be absolute fireworks. You know, the simple fact that, that, if in the event Volkanovsky was to use that, that power wrestling that he uses, what's he going to do on the ground with Brian Ortega? Before we do our picks here in a little bit, I want to ask you this question to give you these three names. Which one of these three fighters do you think presents the bigger threat to, or actually, how about this? Which one of these four fighters do you think presents the biggest threat to Volkanovsky? Brian Ortega, Chan Sung Jung, Max Holloway, who's already fought him twice, or uh, Zabit? I truly think that Max won uh, the second fight. So, of course, Max is at the top of my list. But uh, more so than any of those four, I would have to say somebody like Calvin, Calvin Cater with that okay. excellent boxing that he's got. But out of, the, out of the people that you've listed, I really, I really like Brian Ortega's chance against Volkanovski just for the simple fact that Volkanovski, he relies on that, that power wrestling and that smothering – uh, pace and pressure wrestling wise. Yeah. He's gotten really good stand up, and you've seen it. Uh, you know, you've seen it kind of showcased against max, you know, with those leg kicks, you've seen it against Jose Aldo. Um, but with, when you have someone who 50% of their game is striking and 50% is wrestling, when you take away one of those, one of those, uh, offenses, you know, taking away his wrestling, because I, I almost guarantee he doesn't want to go to the ground with Brian Ortega. Um, then you kind of got to wonder where you where you go from from there. So I would say Max, and then and then probably Brian Ortega in that regard. But Chan Sung Jung can get it done. I mean, uh, I think Zabit could even get it done. Truthfully, I mean Zabit's an absolute wild card, and, and the only reason I'm leaving Zabit out of these conversations is because we've not seen him in quite a while. But he is definitely still there and still just as dangerous. I mean, he trains with guys like Barboza and Marais. Uh, well, actually, that, both they've both left Mark Henry's, haven't they? So. Um, yeah, he trains with absolute killers, man. So I would not be surprised if Zabit could go in there and get it done. It's just, I, I like Volkanovski. I think right now Volkanovski might be the weakest champion we have in the UFC. And I know I sound really salty as a Max Holloway fan saying that, but <laughs> just from the outside looking in, I truly do believe that if anybody in 2020 or 2021 was to lose their belt, uh, I, I do wholeheartedly believe that it, it could definitely be Volkanovski first. Yeah, and I, I agree with, with this. I just believe that Volkanovski has the most legit challengers because, I mean, as you mentioned, I, I gave you four names, and you go Calvin Cater, and that just shows how deep that division really is. And, you know, Zabit, in my mind, is still one of the scariest challengers in the division. We've just, we, I just don't know if he has the cardio. We, we've seen a guy like – we've seen Zabit fade in three-round fights, so you wonder what he would do if things went to deep water, especially since Volkanovski's only really fighting five-round fights here lately. Holloway's the same way. He's a guy who's always been known to, to be able to battle for five rounds. Zombie is a great five-round fighter as well. Ortega – you know, just a survivor, a guy who can get beat up for four rounds and still be around in the fifth. So those are the questions I have about Zabit, but I'm really looking forward to that fight this weekend. Uh, just moving down the card real quick, Josh, seeing if anything jumps out. I, I do love the flyweight fight between Caitlin Chukagian and Jessica Andrade. Uh, Andrade, a former champion at strawweight. She's going to move up 
to 125 pounds. You know, you got to remember uh, Andrade fought at Bantamweight when they first launched the Bantamweight division. Then Super drops to 115 pounds. She's a smaller girl, only about 5'4". Now she sort of meets in the middle. Could be one of her best weight classes, many of her coaches said. Uh, Caitlin Chukagan, though, you know, she pretty much admitted or said this week to MMA Junkie that she's fighting on a clock that she truly thinks – that you know, she only has about six months of her MMA career left because she's ready to start a family. So you wonder how that changes her going into some of these fights if she'll look for uh, maybe a bit more aggressive and look to possibly get a win this weekend and then be next in line for a title shot. How do you see that fight going in the co-main event? Seriously, I think when people are starting to talk about what they have going on outside of the cage, and this is not a knock on Caitlin Chukagian, but when people start talking about things that they have going on outside of the cage, I kind of wonder – uh, where their attention is at. You know, you see him with Tyron Woodley, you know, he got a TMZ show, he dropped an album. And then, you know, here we are two years later and, and the Tyron that, that is fighting today, you know, I would feel pretty comfortable going a couple of rounds with, you know? So it's, it's one of those things that I think your outside influences and your outside interests will definitely impede on your career. Uh, so if she's looking forward to starting a family and, and that's kind of like her goals and her aspirations, I'm honestly kind of wondering, uh, how motivated she's going to be to show up and, and to get the job done. And Jessica Andrade, she, she uh, mini Vanderlei, right? Yeah. That's a good <laughs> I mean, one. she, she is a destroyer. So I, I honestly think we're probably going to see a little bit of a, um, you know, the, the Jessica Andrade, Carolina Kovalkiewicz. I think we're going to see a remix of that. Yeah, and I can see that as well. You got to remember that she's she's a heavy-handed strawweight who was really having trouble catching some of those, those speedy 115-pound girls. It's pretty notorious that you know moving up 10 pounds, these these women are going to be a bit slower. So you wonder if that will help Jessica Andrade land these big overhands like she's thrown in the past. Because I mean, you know, she was very competitive against Rose Namajunas, and it just seemed like she had trouble really timing the big overhand. And Rose is as quick as they come and straw weight. So moving up to 125, I think this could be a, a big time performance by Andrade. She gets a big finish. I mean, she could really catapult herself to a title fight somewhere down the road. Uh, a couple other names on the card. Thomas Almeida is back fighting Jonathan Martinez on, on short notice. Uh, James Krause, always fun to watch fighting uh, Claudio Silva, who's 14 and one. And he's had a lot of good fights. Another one of these guys that's sort of underrated, just doesn't say active enough. Jimmy crew also on the, the main card uh, prelims, uh, a couple marquee names, but one fight I just want to point out a uh, Jillian Robertson against Pollyanna Botello, uh, two very up and coming women flyweights. So again, that women's flyweight division will, will see some changes after this weekend's card. So anything besides uh, those, those top two fights really stand out to you this weekend? No, I, I really like the returning uh, Thomas Almeida at, at featherweight, mind you, not at the, uh, not at Bantamweight where he spent a lot of his career. Uh, Thomas Almeida is one of those guys. He's fun to watch, man. He's super heavy handed and he just slings bombs. Uh, you know, Jimmy Crude, light heavyweight, he's one of those guys, one of the, the Australian, New Zealand guys that's kind of, you know, they're kind of becoming a staple in our sport now. You know, we've, we've kind of went in trends. You know, you'll have the Brazilians, and then, uh, you know, you'll have, you'll have Brazilians, and now we have a, a large African um, group of fighters that are slowly taking over, and the Australians are right there, right about to take over. You know, you've got Adesanya and Volkanovski. And uh, Jimmy Crute's as nasty as they come at, at light heavyweight, man. So I really, I like Jimmy Crute. Uh, I was going to point out the Jillian Robertson, uh, the Botello fight as well. Um, they both have losses on the island, correct? Uh, I believe they do. Well, I think Jillian Robertson may be on a winning streak. Has she lost here recently? 
Let's see. I'm, I'm she, clicking she, it now. She's be her last loss was to uh, Macy Barber. That was back in oh, October okay, of last okay. year. She's she's on a four fight winning streak. Okay, sweet. Yeah, then yeah, I'm I'm all for that. Um, I think this is going to be one of those cards that's going to kind of be lackluster on paper until we see it in person, and it's probably going to overperform, you know. Um, but yeah, I'm I'm hyped about the main event. You know, it's been a long time coming. I'm hyped about the co-main and and Jessica Andrade at, at flyweight. Uh, Thomas Almeida is always, always a fun fight to watch. So uh, this should be a really good card. It's going to start at 7 p.m. Uh, I think this last weekend, I think the card started a little early, didn't it? I think it did. I think it started, uh, I think the main card started at 8. So that was a good change because usually, you know, they start the prelims at 8, the main card at 10. So I like now that they're they're moving that back a little bit. And So this this one, the prelims are at 4 and the main is at main, seven. 7. Yeah, That's nice. That's yeah. super nice. I'm going to say a lot of people are going to love that. And I'm a big fan of that as well. Uh, uh, Josh, and- give me a before- Sorry, at, at middleweight we have John Phillips coming back, who is oh yeah uh, the notorious the first victim of of Kamzat Chimaev. So that will be fun to see. You know, we had this moment with uh, with Israel Adesanya and Marvin Vittori. Yeah, you know, where we seen Israel go in and do his thing, and it was a kind of a closer fight. But we we're now seeing how impressive that win is and how much that win holds up. So let's see what John Phillips does this weekend. He's fighting on the prelim card. Yeah, that'll be sort of. Uh will actually give him almost in a weird way a little name value because that's what people will think when they see John Phillips. Like, oh, that's the guy that Shemaev fought. So, I mean, that's – Didn't a, even land a strike. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's it's weird name value, but, I mean, you know, name value is name value. Uh, give me your picks for the top two fights. So, women's bantamweight co-main event, Caitlin Chukagian and Jessica Andrade, and then the featherweight uh, main event fight, number one contender fight between Brian Ortega and Chan Sung Jung, Mr. Korean Zombie. All right, I think we're going to be on the same page with this flyweight fight. I think Jessica Andrade is going to go out. She's going to get it done in the first round. I mean, Rose Namajunas is a special striker, and uh, and you know she kind of she can kind of impose her will on anybody she wants. But even still, Jessica Andrade pulled forward. She won that third round of the of the Rose fight, and you know the the fight before that. You know she the fight with Rose before that. She dropped Rose and super killed her. Now killed her, yeah. So she's she's super deadly, man. I think we're gonna get a nice, uh, sweet first round TKO uh, out of that fight. And then with Brian Ortega, man, I'm gonna go out on the limb and I'm gonna say Brian Ortega is gonna submit Chan Sung Jung in the first round. Um, Whoa. I yes, I I don't know why. I just have this feeling that Ortega gets it done. He gets it done fast, and then he's looking for that quick turnaround. So I think I think by the end of the year we should we should have uh, both guys booked up for something new. Wow, I know I know you're going to disagree with me on that one. Yeah, I didn't. That that kind of I'm gonna have to whew, catch myself. That that caught me. I'm uh, I'm shocked. But uh, the the co-main event, I'm with you. I do like Jessica Andrade. I I love Caitlin Chukagi. Let me say that, and uh, I agree 100% with what you said about sometimes when your mind is elsewhere, and the fact that Chukagi has brought up her aspirations to become a mother multiple times also sort of makes me go, you know, it's one thing to mention it once when you're asked about it, but when you continuously mention it, it's almost like you're hoping that you, you get beat or something happens and you can sort of be done. Um, and, and Chukagian, you know, straight up said that she feels like once she takes that route with her life, she will not come back to MMA. Uh, so all those things said, I'm, I'm with you. I think that may not be a great frame of mind going into fight an absolute finisher like Jessica Andrade. I think Andrade gets it done uh, either first or second round TKO. So we're together there. Uh, I do disagree in the main event, man. I love Brian Ortega. But sometimes uh, when you just get beat up like that and you take two years off, 
it just makes me wonder where your mindset are. Are you able to get your mind back? Are you able to get that confidence back? Because Ortega was a confident guy. I mean, he was, you know, undefeated, never been beaten. The one no contest because he smoked marijuana before a fight and got popped for it again. I mean, this is a guy who had never been beaten. And then to not lose your first fight because you got, you know, chin checked unconscious or because you get caught in a weird position. When you get your first loss by getting just beat up, dominated for 25 minutes, I, I just I wonder about mental fortitude. And I could be wrong, and you could be 100% right that Ortega has put that loss behind him. He's grown from it. He's improved from it. And he goes out here and just makes a loud statement and uh, deservedly so earns a title shot. I'm not sold that that happens. I, I think Korean Zombie is too unorthodox, too unorthodox, has too many different ways to touch up Brian Ortega. He's got too many different ways to win the fight. He could outbox him. He, he could just use his range. He could work the body of Brian Ortega. He could mix in some kicks. He, he could use his dirty boxing, use his clinch work. Um, and, you know, like I sort of was hinting at earlier, I like Brian Ortega, and I think he's great on the ground, but I'm not 100% sold that if this fight goes to the ground that it's going to be Ortega's jungle. I really think it would be a pretty close MMA grappling matchup with these two both on the ground because I do think Zombie's got a lot of tricks up his sleeve and just got a lot of strength to him as well where I don't know if he'll fall right into a triangle or some kind of bad position. So uh, I'm going to take Korean Zombie. Uh, I have a lot of respect for Ortega's chin, so I'm not sure he finishes him. I think this could be just a real fun 25-minute fight. I'm not saying it'll be like the Holloway fight. I don't think Zombie destroys him for 25 minutes. I think Ortega holds his own, maybe even gets in some pretty favorable positions in terms of grappling. Uh, but I think in the end, we're probably looking at a 49-46 decision win for Korean Zombie. And uh, I still think that the UFC will will have some problems officially making Zombie the number one contender because I do think they'll sort of start to look at that Zabit Yair fight. I do think they may even look at a guy like Calvin Cater uh, and potentially booking him with Max Holloway. But I, I do think Korean Zombie gets it done, but I do think we're looking at a, a real fun 25-minute fight. I absolutely love that. Uh, I love that opinion. I'm excited to see this fight. Cody, I actually unfortunately have to sign off, so I will let you do our midnight fights. I hate to leave you so early. I've got to get ready to go to uh, jujitsu here in a minute. No problem, uh, man. So I will leave all the fans with one fight before I go. Uh, we've been talking about him. It's TJ Dillashaw. I'm leaving you with the TJ Dillashaw versus John Lineker at UFC 207. That is my my fight to watch. Yeah, Cody, it's a good one. It has been awesome, brother. I will see you on the next week. Yes, sir. Josh signing out, and we got a bunch of fun fights. As always, Josh, every week, we bring you the midnight fights to watch, and we got a, some good ones this week. Again, we've really talked about the Bantamweight division, so other great Bantamweight fights to watch. If you want to flash back to the WEC days, uh, really any of those marquee names, Miguel Torres uh, against uh, Mizugaki was one of the great fights from the WEC days. And, of course, Joseph Benavidez, uh, if you've heard any of Megan O'Leary's talk, she says that he's not quite done yet, does want at least one more fight before he hangs him up. So if you want to go watch a fun uh, Joby fight, Joseph Benavidez against Miguel Torres was a great fight back in March of 2010. Uh, those are WEC fights. Of course, there's a lot of fun Bantamweight fights in the UFC, but, I mean, you can't go wrong in, in the WEC watching some fights like that. So your midnight fights, again, is something Josh came up with. Just fights to kind of watch while you're winding down your night or something and get to see some good things. Can't go wrong with any Bantamweight fights. Usually one of the most fun divisions to watch. And you had some great Bantamweight fights last weekend, good featherweight fights 
coming up this weekend. We'll be back with you next week as we'll review everything from the Brian Ortega Korean Zombie card. And then, of course, Josh and I will jump forward to the massive upcoming pay-per-view, UFC 254, headlined by Khabib Nurmagomedov defending his lightweight title against interim champion Justin Gagey. We will preview that in depth and have a full preview of UFC 254 and break down the UFC featherweight title picture all coming up next week. Until then, for Josh, I'm Cody. We'll see you next time right here on Baseline MMA. Thanks for listening to Baseline MMA. For written previews, recaps, and more, plus NBA, NFL, and other sports coverage, visit our website at BaselineTimes.com. Follow the Baseline MMA Twitter for live fight coverage every weekend. For TJ, Josh, and Cody, until next week, thanks for joining us on another episode of Baseline MMA. Baseline MMA.